As Pastor Steve has been continuing to preach through the book of First Peter, when on occasion I have opportunity to preach, I've been wanting to look at Peter's life in the Gospels so that we can get, again, some of the background and information about uh, Peter and the scenes of him and, and Jesus and how that affected what he wrote those many years later. The material that I want to look at today, the text for us, is another important scene in Peter's life. This one from Matthew 16. Uh, and the idea, the big picture idea of it here, of course, is that we, as we gain some insight into Peter as the disciple and the author of 1 Peter, we, we do that as we see some of these scenes from his life. Matthew 16 is a famous passage, and we see in it that Peter is kind of like us. He's a mixed bag. He, in the same day, is both, we see Peter's success and we see his failures as a disciple. The setting for Matthew 16 is well into the public ministry of Jesus, probably on the downward slope in terms of his movement towards Jerusalem and the events of Holy Week. Peter and the other 11, as well as many others, have been following Jesus for at least a year, maybe two, maybe even close to three by this point. Jesus has become famous as a teacher and a healer. He's often surrounded by crowds, as we read at the end of Matthew 15. At the same time, in the beginning of this chapter, he is becoming increasingly opposed by the religious leaders of his day. Jesus is becoming increasingly this polarizing kind of figure. The section also, I think, marks the climax and nearly the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. We probably aren't far in terms of space and time from the triumphal entry narrated in Matthew 21. So this idea here, though, of both the approval of and the opposition to Jesus is part of the context of the passage, all of it as it relates to this idea of who he really is, of his true identity, as we'll see. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 16 on page 6. 194 if you're using one of the blue pew Bibles. There's a sermon outline as well on pages 10 and 11 in the bulletin. Let's read together Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples to tell, not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Let's 
far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, this morning we come to your word and we understand that it is revealed to us, that it is a gift to us, that these are your words. And as we meditate on them this morning, we need your help and we ask that you would teach and guide us through your spirit, that we would understand rightly what we would learn from these passages from your word and that we would apply it courageously to our own lives. We pray your blessing on this time together and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In our digital and modern age, we conduct an increasing amount of our life virtually, over email, over blogs, over websites, social media, networking, and increasingly so, widening our circles of connection in ways that were unbelievable just a few years ago. Some studies have shown that, theoretically, any person on earth can be connected to any other person on earth who's on social media, Facebook, social networking kinds of sites by less than seven people. So a friend of yours and a friend of theirs and a friend of theirs, you know how it goes, you can connect to almost anyone in the world in less than seven steps. It's amazing, isn't it? And part of this means that our life has less face-to-face contact which has opened the door for kinds of identity fraud and schemes to exist on a greater scale than perhaps ever before. And we'll hear these stories from time to time of public figures who get caught up in some kind of complex hoax and who are taken in by it and then are embarrassed and sort of scandalized later. Some of us college football fans remember the story of Manti Teo and his sort of pretend girlfriend, this hoax that he fell into that became reported in in the winter. Um, You know, people can conceal their identities. They can modify pictures. They can create websites and blogs under different names and make up a more exciting past and present than is actually the case, right? And so the issue of a person's identity and how to verify it has become this new and kind of daunting task as people seek to stop these kinds of hoaxes. Who are you really dealing with? How is their message rooted in who they are? Is it a front? Is it a fake? Or is this the real person that you're communicating with, that you see online or whatever? The question of who you're dealing with, the question of their identity, is a vital one in our text this morning in the age of Jesus. Who is he? And what does that mean about what he says and his words? We begin with our text describing that Jesus and the disciples are traveling in the region of Caesarea Philippi. This is further north than they usually traveled. Some commentators suggest that they're in sort of a retreat. They've kind of backed away from the crowds for a few days. In verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The identity question, this question is posed to the disciples. You know, they're fully into the ministry of Jesus at this point. They're fully into this journey with him as disciples. And Jesus poses them this vital question. First, by asking about the word on the street about him. Who do people 
say that I am. And various characters are mentioned by the disciples. And the common thread, I think, of these characters is that they're prophets, that we're looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. They're forerunner kinds of figures. But then Jesus turns the question more pointedly to them. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a little unclear here if Peter is speaking his own opinion or if he's speaking what's become a consensus opinion of the Twelve. Some commentators suggest that the Twelve had sort of worked this out, that this was their understanding, that this was their answer. Based on Jesus' response, that seems less likely to me. It seems to me that Peter is speaking his own thoughts, his own opinion, what he's come to understand And this isn't, of course, the first time that the question of Jesus' identity has come up for the disciples. It's a theme through the gospel accounts. What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him, Matthew 8, 27. Could this be the son of David? The crowds ask in Matthew 12, 23. Even truly you are the son of God, Matthew 14, 33. But here... It seems that Peter expresses clearly the fullest, the richest answer to the question of Jesus' identity. Based on all that he had seen as a disciple, Peter can proclaim, seemingly with confidence, you are the Christ. That is, you are the Messiah. You are the Anointed One. The one greater than all of the prophets, the hope of our people Israel, the promised one who's been promised to us through our history from way back in Genesis 3.15 and all the way forward, the one who would battle against and defeat the serpent and the enemy of God's people. You are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, meaning you're a divine figure, you're of heavenly origin, you're of the living God, not the dead so-called gods that are worshipped in ignorance and aren't gods at all. Peter's response is full of meaning for a first century Jewish person, the fullest expression of Jesus' identity to date. And Jesus commends Peter for this truthful answer in verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus says that Peter is blessed, that the word here literally means happy, with a kind of happiness that goes deep, kind of more like joy that can't be overcome by circumstances. Not sort of happy-go-lucky, but a deeply kind of happy. It's the same word used in the Beatitudes. Blessed, happy, and truly happy the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and the rest. This idea of blessedness, happiness. Peter has seen the truth. Peter has begun to share in the blessings of the truth of the kingdom of heaven in fellowship with Jesus. Peter can be truly happy in the knowledge of the Savior. As well, this verse shows us that the source of Peter's insight isn't his own cleverness, the opinions of others. They think Jesus is a forerunner kind of prophet, preparing the way for the Messiah. And Peter says, no, you are the Messiah. 
You've arrived. Jesus says that God has revealed this. The Father has shown Peter that this is true. It's not a truth discerned by observation or human insight. It's a truth that's revealed. Spiritually discerned. Peter has been given spiritual eyes to see. He's been enlightened to understand that this is really the truth about Jesus. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Jesus' pronouncement about Peter in verse 18 has become one of the most debated verses in Scripture over the centuries, partly because the interpretation of this verse, of verse 18, it clearly divides Protestant and Catholic denominations and traditions and churches. There's a lot that we could say about verse 18 that we won't say this morning. Um, If you're interested in learning more about the differences of Protestants and Catholics and their common ground and also their differences, uh, Ken Abbott is teaching a class on that exact subject right now, uh, this summer at 11 o'clock, so you can join him in the library, and I I would recommend that. But this is a highly debated verse. Let's try to look at it at least a little bit for a few moments. Jesus says, you are Peter. The word is Petros. That's the Greek spelling or pronunciation. And on this rock, that is Petra, I will build my church. It's kind of a pun. It's a play on words that Jesus is doing here. And he's taking a a noun that is a, a feminine gender noun, Petra, rock, and he's turning it into a masculine nickname, according to some commentators. So he's taking this We can't do it in English because we don't have gender cases, feminine and masculine, for things like they do in so many other languages. Uh, So it's kind of hard for us to understand, but he's taking this noun and making it into a nickname. So Peter is something like Rocky. (laughs) There isn't any evidence that anyone had ever used these words before, either Petros or Cephas, which is the Aramaic word for rock that Jesus uses, that Jesus calls Peter in John 1, 42. There isn't any evidence that in pre-Christian times that anyone had used these words as people's names or nicknames. It's really fascinating. So Jesus is calling Peter a name that no one else had ever used as a name in either Aramaic or in Greek to say something about who Peter is and his relationship to the church. He's inventing a nickname. Of course, Peter has become a very common name in post-Christian times, but, but here it was, it was brand new. It was strange, probably, that Jesus had taken this noun and put a masculine ending on it and used it as, as Peter's name. But it captures something of... Peter's relationship with the church. As a complete aside, actually, before we get there, I think this is another interesting example of God renaming people that we see so often in Scripture, right? That Abram becomes Abraham, and that Jacob becomes Israel. That God has this plan of changing people's names and giving them new names. And even more, in Revelation 2.17, there's this picture of that all believers will have this new and unique name given to them by God in heaven. It's a picture, I think, of God's specific love for you and each and every other one of his children. 
to rename you, to give you a unique name no one else has, no one else knows, to capture in your name what is special, what is unique, and what is beautiful about you and the way God has created you. All who believe, all who overcome, is the language of Revelation 2, will share in this renaming of God as he is making all things new. It's something for us to reflect on this morning. But, so, what, in what way here is Rocky, the rock upon which Jesus is building the church? That's the foundational question in ways in which Protestants and Catholics over the centuries have understood this differently. I think we can say some things. The text affirms that Peter is given a special kind of authority. Verse 19 suggests this, and we see this in the early church. By Acts 2, Peter is the spokesman. He's the preacher of the first sermon. He's a leader of the twelve. So he is given a special kind of authority by Jesus. In this sense, Peter is the rock. In that sense, both in his person, in who he is, in the, as a key leader in the church, and in his confession that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the one who's saying that, and that that with him is this, you know, foundation for the church that Jesus is building. I think they go together. It's both Peter as a person and his confession that Jesus is the Christ that is this idea of a foundation, the rock, that he's rocking. But on the other hand, we don't want to overemphasize Peter's authority and his role either. It's not Peter's church. Jesus is building his church. Peter's not the cornerstone. Peter's not the most important stone. The scriptures teach clearly that Jesus is the cornerstone, that he's the rock, that he's the head of the church. And thus, I think we can say that some of the further Roman Catholic teaching that have developed through history as related to this passage aren't, aren't really to be found here. This idea that Peter's the first pope, uh, the, the visible leader of the church on earth, this idea that of apostolic succession, that the authority that Jesus gives to Peter is then passed down to future popes, I think that is clearly beyond... What, our, what this particular text, at least, is affirming for us. Of course, there's much more that we could say about it. Um, today, I want us to continue on to the next section, verse 21. If Peter is blessed in the text so far, now we turn to the part of the text where Peter is Satan. Uh, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Verse 21 is a real turning point in the ministry of Jesus. From that time on, there's a darker backdrop to Jesus' ministry. Opposition increases. Suffering and death are looming on the horizon for Jesus. The parallel account to this passage in Luke 9 
uh, describes this passage, and then towards the end of Luke 9 and verse 51, Luke writes that as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing what was coming, moving steadfastly and moving resolutely. From that time on, from this time on, Jesus is moving to the cross, speaking openly with his disciples about what is to come, suffering and opposition and death and resurrection. And this, of course, would have been a profound shift for them, for their expectations. This was jarring, unsettling kind of news, unwelcome news, especially as it comes right on the heels of the most complete expression of Jesus' identity up to this point. And that's what I think would have made it almost incomprehensible for them. How on earth does you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, possibly fit with, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed? How on earth do those things fit together? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. Peter's first attempt to understand this and articulate it, is, of course, is a disaster. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine that? Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of God. Of men, Peter begins by rebuking Jesus and suggesting that all that Jesus has foretold would not happen. Jesus, for his part, doesn't mince words, but gives the opposite assessment of Peter as he had in this earlier section. Verse 17, Peter had been responding to the truth revealed from God. Here, Peter is not thinking God's thoughts at all, but he's thinking in man's ways. Jesus calls Peter Satan, that is, the adversary. He rebukes him as a stumbling block, a hindrance. And this is a really interesting Greek word. It's scandalon, from which we get the word scandal. In earlier Greek, this word meant the springing part of a trap that you use for catching animals. And then over time, it developed to describe the trap itself or the snare, and then began to have a sort of metaphorical meaning that you could trap someone with their with a question. You could trap them in their words. It's a stumbling block, a snare, a rock that trips people up and makes them fall, either figuratively or literally. And we reflect this meaning in English, right? A scandal brings disgrace or offense. If someone is caught in a scandal, they're disgraced, they're embarrassed, they're brought to ruin, they're tripped up, they fall from grace. If someone behaves in a scandalous way, they're offensive, they're uncouth, they're inappropriate. They make other people stumble and fall into their folly. So it's really interesting here that Jesus calls Peter a scandal to him. Why? Because Peter's message is Satan's message. It's a false path. It's a trap placed before Jesus that Jesus would turn from his father's will that the cup of God's wrath would be taken away from him, that he could avoid the cross. That's the sense of the stumbling block here. Peter is rocky, but in this case, he's a stumbling rock. 
He's a rock of offense and a rock of scandal. He's a rock in the path trying to trip up Jesus, who is resolutely setting his face towards Jerusalem. Peter is the scandalous one here in the text, the only example that we have of in the New Testament of someone being described this way, other than the more comprehensive use of this word in Scripture through the New Testament and in the Old is that the Messiah is the scandalous one, the one who makes men stumble and trip and fall on him, the stone who offends in God's design. In Isaiah and in the Psalms, we see this theme that's picked up and expanded in the New Testament as it's quoted in multiple places, including Romans 9, and most relevant for us in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you would turn with me there, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8, I'll read that real quickly. But listen to the language about stone and about stumbling stone, about the scandal. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. Peter picks up this idea. He understood it years later as he reflects on it. For some, the stone is precious. For others, the stone is a hazard. It trips them up. They fall on it. And that's what's happening here in Matthew 16. Peter's stumbled. He's fallen. He's tripped up by Jesus' identity and Jesus' mission. Peter can't understand, you are the Christ and I must go and suffer and be killed. Peter can't put it together. And because of that, he expressed this scandal in response, inviting Jesus to follow the path of Satan instead of the path of his father. You see how this works? It's a double-edged sword. Jesus is the rock, placed there for faith. Jesus is also the obstacle to faith. There's a twofold operation of Jesus in the world. He's the only possible foundation for life and salvation. And he's a barrier to faith in his person and his plan. The barrier here for Peter is this scandalous idea that the true Messiah would suffer and be killed. In the resurrection, in the coming of the Spirit, God removes this scandal for Peter. He helps him to understand it so that he can move forward in faith, that he can teach it to others as he does here in 1 Peter 2, that he can preach about it in Acts chapter 4, quoting these same Old Testament passages from Isaiah and the Psalms. What about for us today? I think the exact principle is at work in the hearts of all who hear the message of Jesus. The gospel message is either precious or it's absurd. It's either the most beautiful news or it's the most ridiculous news. Perhaps even a third option is that it's a news of no relevance, really. God became a person and lived and died and rose again. Really? It's a scandalous message for our world today. The biggest scandal in history 
The message of the gospel is either the greatest investment of humanity, worth every life and every penny and much more given to it for the cause of Christ, or it's a colossal waste of time and effort. And the whole thing hinges right here on this passage. Either Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, or he isn't. Either he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and on the third day be raised to life, or he mustn't and he didn't. Both Jesus' identity as the unique God-man and Savior of the world and his mission that he would give his life as a ransom for many are linked together in this great scandal. And so the first question I have for you this morning is, who is Jesus to you? Have you embraced this scandalous Jesus, the Christ? Have you believed in him and trusted him? You must, in a sense, fall on this stone. Your life has to be tripped up by this Jesus, or you haven't really engaged with him, with his identity, and with his mission. Together, these things are a rock in your path that you cannot avoid You can't walk around it. Either he is your Messiah and the one who gave his life for you, or he isn't. And that's the first question that we have to answer. That's the question that's posed to us here. For all who believe, there's a second question. The ones who trust in this Savior, the ones who have been changed by him, the hard part of the Christian life, I think, is really continuing to believe this scandalous news. And to see how it goes deeper into our hearts and how it changes everything. Because really, if we're honest about it, it's harder to believe than not to. It's hard to continue to believe this because the world will constantly tell you the opposite. On one hand, the gospel is so simple in its essence. That Christ died for you and for me. That he paid the penalty for sin through his death that you and I couldn't pay, and that by paying that penalty and paying it for us, then we can be reconciled to God. That's simple enough. But it's full of mystery, isn't it? And sometimes we have more questions than answers when we try to live this Christian life. And that's where the rubber meets the road. That's the challenge of the gospel to us who are believers. What do we do when God doesn't seem to answer our prayers? How do we respond when the news is really bad? How do we continue to live and move forward in faith when life is too busy or too complicated or too scary or too confusing or too lonely? What about the continuing scandal of this book telling us something and promising us something that so often seems to contradict all of the other messages that we're receiving every day? This is where the rubber meets the road, where the gospel challenges us. Do we really believe it? Even if we can't fully understand it. I don't know what challenges you're facing today, mostly. Maybe you don't have any big challenges in your life right now, and that's great. But maybe you do. Things that make you want to crawl into a little ball and hide. Relationships that can't seem to be mended. Friends, family members, spouses who seem oblivious to this scandal or uninterested in it. Sinful habits that you can't seem to break. 
even though you pray and even though you try, whatever it is, certainly I don't have all the answers, and sometimes we have to live with that tension of unanswered questions. But I would invite you one more time back to this passage and to a reminder that we have seen already. If you believe with Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then Jesus' response to you is the same and even more than his response to Peter. Blessed are you. In the deepest and most profound sense, in the amazing promises of the gospel, blessed are you. Happy are you with the happiness that will someday be complete and ultimately satisfying, even if it's just the first fruits of that now, and a struggle sometimes to believe it. Remember what you have. Salvation is yours. It's yours. Salvation from your sins. Salvation from yourself. Salvation from a meaningless life. Redemption. The fixing of what is broken is yours in Christ. The myriad of blessings offered in the gospel are free and they're fixed for you in this scandalous Christ. I invite you this morning to come to him, to trust in him, to reflect this morning this truth that Christ is the son of the living God. And then he came to give his life for you because he loves you. That's the gospel. That's what we can embrace and live with for all of our lives. Amen. Please pray with me.